Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. So you're missing opportunities for revenue. And as a business owner, let's keep it to that. If, you know, let's, if we do have to make it that simple, then let's do that. You're not developing that full potential of, of, you know, profitability as an enterprise when you don't embrace diverse teams. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey there, Solar Warrior. Welcome back to Suncast. Thank you so much. Really, thank you for lending us your ears. And the only non-renewable resource that you've got, and that is your time. It is so valuable to you. I'm glad that you are investing it here with me. If you're new here, I just want to say thanks for giving us a chance to earn your attention. Today's Entrepreneur celebrates more than a decade of service in the solar industry. Not only we get into how she passionately pursued a profession in this sector, but also how she has now parlayed that sense of service into community building and serving as one of our board members on the industry association, SIA. Dana Claire Redden is a true solar concierge, and she has figured out how to unlock the value of the social equity involved in creating these renewable energy credits. So if you're unfamiliar with the idea of a social rec social or a social renewable energy credit, and you're curious how Dana and her team help improve DEI to underserved communities in solar development, what that delivery model looks like and how it's more than just philanthropic so much so that she decided it's not a nonprofit at all. Well, you are in the right place. Solar Stewards is a social enterprise connecting corporate social responsibility initiatives with schools and universities, affordable and senior housing, and so much more in marginalized communities around the United States. Dana epitomizes all that is right about our work in renewables, where she every day gets up to work at the intersection of climate action, environmental justice, and social entrepreneurship for communities worldwide. You're going to love this interview. And if you do, in fact, like what you hear, I trust that you are subscribed to the podcast. If you're not, it's super easy and whatever podcast player you are using, Spotify, iTunes, however it is that you get this content, I pray that you would subscribe there. Click that notification button as well so that our twice weekly content just like this won't pass you right by. Of course, you can always go over to mysuncast.com where we've got more than 350 additional founder stories and startup advice. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Well, we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation today with my new friend Dana Redden, and we're going to get into a conversation that she's particularly passionate about and I'm very, very curious about on a number of levels, how you and your clients, just like she and her clients, can address some of the fringe benefits of going solar. We'll talk about 
the ways that Dana is working with major corporate clients to address scope two, even scope three emissions and more. Before we get too deep down the rabbit hole, let me welcome Dana Claire Redden to Suncast. Thank you, Nico. Great to be here. Well, it is great to finally have a chance for us to sit down. You have been really on a tear this year. Uh, and I, I say by like this year, we'll call it like the last 365 days. I've gone from not knowing you <laughs> to seeing your name everywhere. <laughs> what about your preparation or training has prepared you or creates this, this personal branding, which I consider it all personal branding, which is a good thing this personal branding phenom that has become Dana Claire Redden's, the now board member of SIA, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, well, um, I appreciate that. Uh, it's kind of like one of those 10 year overnight exactly. successes, right? <laughs> I guess I put in my, my 10,000 hours. I think soon as that, that clock rolled over, that's what happened. Um, uh, you know, I, I right place, right time, right focus, I suppose. You know, we've been talking about the opportunity to bring solar to applications that serve the community, you know, since 2012, but even more so when I first started in solar, which was 2008 in California. But, you know, it wasn't until that racial reckoning, as, as it's been termed, that p folks really saw the value of an, a more inclusive and equitable clean energy transition. Well, we'll definitely get into in a moment your your first uh, steps into the renewable energy sector. But I want to go back a little further than that uh, as we begin. You self-describe as growing up in a small Rust Belt town in Western PA. You and I talked a bit about how that has formed sort of the, the character that has carried you through life. Talk to me a bit about growing up in Western PA and the kinds of family and perhaps extended family or even school environment that cultivated the Dana Claire Redden that now is, is sort of tackling these really tough to uh, address issues. Well, uh, I appreciate you bringing that up because it is uh, very close to my heart and, and my path. We just heard, not to date this, this interview, cause I'm sure it will live, live on the computer, but, uh, um, you know, our, our president just said, we're not going to say Rust Belt anymore two nights ago. So I, I could get with that. I think that's a great idea. However, it's it's still perhaps we've got some things to do before we can actually it's still rusty is what I, I'm trying to say. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm a, a geriatric millennial. I suppose that's that's the technical term. <laughs> wow. I own I it. That. Yeah, that's right. Well, it's I didn't coin it. That's for sure. But I'll, I'll own it. Um, I'm on the older part of the the wave and I do relate to my generation, um, which which means that, you know, when I was growing up, the that industry was already on the way out. Johnstown was actually where that film with Tom Cruise, All the Right Moves was was filmed. And that whole film, which I actually didn't see until I was in the pandemic. And I thought, you know, I need, to, I need something to watch because, you know, it, it doesn't paint the communities um, in the quote unquote Rust Belt in the best fashion. Everybody's trying to get out. And that's exactly what my reality was. If you want a future, you got to get out of here. But that being said, it's a beautiful region, the mountains, uh, the nature, the people, you know, salt of the earth. Uh, you know, I, I think that that is still true. 
And, you know, my parents really raised me in a, a bubble of you can do what you want to do. You can be who you want to be. And and people are, are kind at heart and certainly, you know, have some grit and, and make it happen. So, you know, my dad is a probation officer. My mom was an English teacher and then she was a, a, a school assistant principal. So certainly one of those families that just was a part of the community. Did the existence of fossil fuels register for you as a part of the economic engine of the community where you grew up? I came about into it as what is this gross stuff? You know, the river was orange. It smelled like rotten eggs. Is that from sulfur? Yeah, it's from acid mine drainage. Um, So um, one of these, and unfortunately, it's one of those problems that continually needs remediation. You can't just fix it once, which I actually learned fairly recently in my whole, you know, journey here. Because in the 90s, they cleaned a, a lot of it up, not all of it by any means, but a lot of it started to look a little better. Um, but what people don't know is you know, the way that funding is set up is paid for by coal companies. So when coal companies go out of business, those remediation you know, which some of them are created by settlement, some of them insurance, this or that's fancy mechanisms to to pay for their externalities. Right. So when they go under that either falls to the state or it doesn't happen. And then, you know, the previous administration had changed some some clean water stuff. I mean, it's it's been a journey, but acid mine drainage was definitely here's a, a story for you. I saved up my money as a child to get a little fish tank. You know, I love, I always love animals, little nature in the house. And I mean, I, I scrimped and saved, you know, I'm, I'm doing all types of chores. So I get the fish and I, I find some good looking slate rocks. It was by a river, maybe not the orangest one, but clearly wasn't clean. I put them in the, the tank and, you know, the next morning, all the fish were dead floating on the top. Uh, from the toxins. Because it was... The- yeah, it was it was too acidic. Um, and, you know, that's when I learned about pH. Right. So but all that death, especially after I've spent all that money as a child, that was certainly and, you know, it wasn't just a natural thing. Of course, this was acid mine drainage. So these things were they just it, it was like dr- dropping a bleach tab in there. <laughs> it was just not. So, you know, those types of things happened. Yeah. Um, Guessing folks don't swim in the rivers where you're from. <laughs> Well, now they do. At least there's one. They, they've got tubing on the uh, Stony Creek River now. And I, I've done that twice. That's when people say, oh, you're going to go shoot the hooch, which is tubing in the Chattahoochee. Shoot and, and the hooch. The hooch, shoot the hooch. Yeah, I'm, I'm you know, I'm sitting, I'm based in Atlanta, Georgia, and so I good. do love to shoot the hooch. And people say, oh, my God, you're going to, you know, dip in the Chattahoochee. I'm like, you know, you've never tried the Stony Creek, so... <laughs> Listen, you know, just stay in the tube. Don't worry about it. Oh my God. But yeah, tubing's one of my favorite things to do. And it's fun. I've got friends who, you know, take their yachts out and I'm over here on a tube and I'm I'm f- having fun either way. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Shoot the hooch. That's a new one for me. Shoot the hooch. Is it? That? That's, I, I didn't quite that either, but uh, certainly one of my favorite pastimes in Atlanta. Yeah, I get, I can assure you. In most of the Southeast, where I, at least where I went to school, University of South Carolina, if someone said shoot the hooch, it had nothing to do with the river. 
<laughs> well, you, you can take your uh, your hooch on the river in That's certain right. places in Georgia. That's true. That's <laughs> that is that is really fun. You know, one of the things that I appreciate about the conversations I've had with you is I I do feel like there's a certain level of influence of that English teacher mom with you. Uh-huh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. You seem, <laughs> you seem to me when we speak, like you are very articulate. You're very capable of communicating to not to, to multiple audiences. How, how have you cultivated that? Has it been something that is a, just a relic of being raised by an English teacher mom, or is it something that you've been very intentional about in your career? Well, I definitely got to give Rita credit Rita, uh, and I'll send her this interview. Yes, that's right. Rita. Thanks, Rita. Rita Redden. Yeah, I know. Thanks. Thanks, Rita. But but also, I think, you know, being a, a person of color, you're in spaces where uh, you've got a code switch, as it's called. So you might talk to a certain community one way and then, you know, per- maybe it's in a professional environment or maybe with another group of friends or another persuasion. So I mean, it's kind of, it's certainly not being bilingual. I wish I was bilingual. My dad, my dad was bilingual. He spoke Spanish, but I consider it to be, well, I guess there's, there's actual terms for this, a, a dialect. So, you know, speaking a couple dialects has always been fun. And, and I do love language. I think it's, it's such a beautiful humanizing part of, of our, our culture. As a communicator, a fellow communicator, I see you. I definitely identify with both wanting to get out of my hometown as soon as possible and Mm -hmm. the need as a a redneck Southern farm boy to become (laughs) a chameleon and a lover of many dialects of our English language. Yes. I find when I lived in California and folks would say, you're not from the South (laughs) in a way that, that to me conveyed, but I don't hear a Southern accent. Mm -hmm. And I was Mm -hmm. talking to my friend, Josh Brooks, who, if you know, Josh Brooks, Brooks Farm. He used to work at RMI. He is one of those genius hillbillies that uses the the perception of the Southern drawl as ignorance to his advantage. Uh, yes. Awesome. And I love it. <laughs> and so I, I love hillbillies. Dude, they're some, of the, they're some of the most resourceful and smartest people on the planet. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? The, every time I, I jerry-rig something around my house, I'm like, you know, I'm from Appalachia. That's right. You know, I mean, I, I, can make, I don't need to go to Home Depot and That's buy right. a $40 part. I, yeah. You know, look at this. You're like looking um, around going, where's that bicycle tube I took out of the bike three years <laughs> oh, ago? Listen, right? Listen, I've got it saved. You don't even understand. I've got so many glass jars. <laughs> It's a little, it's a little hoarder-ish, I will say, but yep. you know, every- <laughs> You and Betsy Johnson, you guys would get, my wife, Betsy, not the, not the designer, you guys would get along quite well. I'm constantly moving mason jars out of the way in my house. You know what? That's exact. I, I want to know what her motivation is. Cause I, I have looked in a couple cabinets, like, are you, are you sure you're okay? Do you really need all these? But yeah. hey, I do. The answer the home, is yes. It's the homes that are in you. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's it. So being a low key prepper is kind of what led me into solar, I think. In, That's a in great some, segue. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> some, some subconscious way. Yeah. Well, I'd love to know <laughs> what brought you into the consciousness that there was this industry around solar all the way back in 2008. I mean, not far removed from when I got in the industry. You said you're in California. Help us understand the time and place where you realized I could build a career around this. 
I just got chills because I remember exactly. And the, it's it's great because the friend I was with remembers, too. He's like, I remember that moment. So I was at uh, I was living in California because I wanted just a whole change of scenery. I mean, I, I you know, finished undergrad in, in Philly, love Philadelphia, uh, but obviously Southern California is a little bit different. And uh, I just wanted that that experience, uh, particularly from the the flora and the fauna. I, you know, I saw it on all these nature shows in the desert and the beach anyway. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm with, he's, he managed a building in La Jolla and, you know, as the manager, he didn't live on the side that looked over the, the coast, right. It's the, the parking lot view. So we're, we're standing on the balcony and I, I was just feeling, um, just really unsatisfied with, with what I was doing. It was just not impacting. It wasn't feeding my soul as I think many millennials have that moment. Right. And I saw, you know, this was in the middle of California's um, CSI, California Solar Initiative. Yeah. Oh, wait, the launch. Yep. Yes. Rebate program. And I'm standing on the balcony looking at these cars baking in the heat. And then, you know, he's telling me about residents and, you know, it's pretty ritzy building, but you, you always have, you know, people who are trying to make do who, you know, couldn't pay a bill, couldn't pay rent, you know, and, and that's his job. He has to manage these, these humans and say, I got to kick you out. And I'm thinking, well, geez, you know, solar is such a big thing. Why don't we, you know, what if they put solar on this parking lot, pay for this energy bill? I mean, a lot of people have make these, all these connections, and then you end up going down the whole rabbit hole as to why it has, you know, they, they make it more complicated. They meaning, you know, incumbent, you know, legacy systems. Let's, let's call it like that. Legacy systems. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't say it. <laughs> I, I, I know you, you definitely did not. <laughs> I did say that. <laughs> um, oh man, the, the, the duality of political correctness and the, and the requirements of our role to be ambassadors requires us to not disparage anyone and give, yeah. I want to give them, first off, I've actually, you know, met some really great utilities that are on the forefront. And I also want to give them room to, to be better. You know, it's, it's easy to put them all in a, to not put them in a box and say, yeah. Yeah. Because, because if you do that, then that's where they want to stay. Like, oh yeah, well Mm -hmm. that's, that is what I am. I'm, you know, um, so let's, let's give them a little room to, to innovate. Yeah. So, you know, I, I look over the history of the work that you sort of started doing, and there's a whole 10 year period that we're definitely going to talk about. It all sort of centers around marketing, program management, messaging, uh, community building. I have to ask before we go deep into the, what you do now, was there ever a career path you thought you were going to go down and you've abandoned that in, in service of this, something that you always thought you would do? Yeah, I I grew up um, in the design world. I loved designing, you know, the built environment. So I I did my undergrad at Drexel in interior design, which was a top rated program. I believe it still is. Uh, And people think of interior design, you know, maybe from those, you know, home improvement shows, pillows, curtains, you know, somebody frantically duct taping moss on a wall or something crazy like that. But, you know, it really is about how to, you know, effectively use a space from a programmatic standpoint. Um, and then, of course, problem solving. That's what design is, is taking a, a problem 
and solving it. So whether it be accessibility, meaning ADA and Americans with Disabilities Act and, and making sure that you have the right, uh, you know, hand on the door or the just so many, you know, turn radiuses and, and different heights of, but lighting is where I, I really loved. And I, I just loved, you know, candle feet and, and doing lighting calculations. And that kind of led me to, wow, this light fixture uses a lot of energy and, you know, calculating those lighting loads and you got to do reflective ceiling plans and you're on AutoCAD and you're checking the fire codes. I mean, it, it's certainly a lot more than just aesthetics. Um, but I also just still love the built environment, which kind of factors into the the movement to focus on solar that's distributed generation and can complement that building's load. Um, but, you know, when I mentioned I wasn't satisfied with what I was doing um, at the time, and I'm not speaking for the industry now, at the time it was it was pretty wasteful. You know, just a lot of, well, this was lead CI wasn't a thing then. So that certainly addressed it. And I, and I did get my lead CI at the time. Lead uh, for commercial interiors commercial, for those, yeah. Commercial interiors. Yes, yeah. thank you. And, and, and certainly that helped. Uh, cradle to Cradle was you know, a book that I, I read in school. So Great book. the movement was happening. The movement was happening. And I want to give credit to that. But certainly I, you know, I was doing jobs where it was just so wasteful. And I thought this is, this is certainly, it's not scalable uh, from a business standpoint. You know, I, there's only so much I can do as, as working, you know, hours a week. So, you know, it was just kind of a, a natural shift. And, uh, you know, is interior design going to solve you know, some of these uh, societal issues in, in developing markets? Maybe not. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. So. so Dana, you're in California and you're dissatisfied with the career path or the direction that your career is going. You, you see the opportunity with solar. Walk me through from that moment to solar concierge. Well, I started doing solar in, in Cali. You know, I just thought, okay, I had that epiphany on my friend's balcony and thought, okay, this is what I want to do. So I took a couple jobs with, you know, the contractors that were taking advantage of that CSI program, cashing in on those rebates. And that's where I got to sit in people's homes and talk to them about solar. It probably wasn't the safe thing to do as a 20 something, you know, single female driving around Imperial, <laughs> Imperial County you know, meeting, you know, strangers in their living room at 6 p.m. I, I, you know, my mom's prayers came in handy there because I certainly, uh, but it was so educational because people wanted to to take advantage of the technology um, and they they really weren't given all the facts. I wasn't supposed to tell them that the interest rate was 20 some percent. And I, I did because I'm, that's just not who I am. I'm Truth not and going lending. To, yeah, I'm having this conversation with a lot of folks lately. Yeah, it was predatory and certainly not what I was about. So I didn't last long at that company, but it taught me everything I needed to know about sizing a system, um, just the basics. Um, so fortunate for that. And I, I did learn from a really great guy on staff there, um, these fundamentals. So, uh, you know, I saw the recession coming. You know, this was 2008, 2007, 2008. And I had a job offer to move to Atlanta and do lead consulting for uh, SL right. King. Yeah. Um, and they wanted me to to help open up a whole other sustainability shop. So they were kind of piecing that out. They saw the opportunity there. So I, I did help them create another branch of their company. So I got to flex a little entrepreneurial stuff, but 
it was a little bit of a bait and switch because I knew I, I wanted to do the solar thing. There was a, a, a project in Atlanta that they, they said that they won um, solar on one of our public transit systems. But, you know, I didn't have as much of an opportunity to work on that as, as it was promised. And I maybe they thought I was joking when I said, I want to do solar stuff. They're like, sure you do. Oh, that's cute. Um, but no, I, I did. So in 2012, when, you know, the dumping was happening and the prices came down for solar, that's when I saw the opportunity to start a business that addressed those issues I saw in people's homes, the misinformation, uh, people being taken for granted, uh, but also loving this technology and wanting to do it. And that's where Solar Concierge came from. So I remember our first conversation about Solar Concierge. And, you know, I think it's remarkable anytime someone takes uh, a decade to do something, as we said uh, earlier, uh, an overnight success, uh, 10 years in the making is is really uh, adequately describes the not only the expertise, but the poise and the clarity with which you speak about the mission that you have. How how did the 10 years as solar concierge and feel free to expound upon what that business was for folks to understand? How did that? 10 years of experience helping folks sort of fostering the, an environment where good decisions could be made and practical uh, application could be had. How did that prepare you for the role that you now have with, with solar stewards, which we'll get into in a moment? Well, thank you for, for those compliments. Uh, it certainly was a trial by fire. You know, it was still meeting folks in their businesses, um, you know, very up close and personal with what they wanted to do with solar technology and, and um, you know, more times than not seeing the barriers. And that was um, a painful experience because, you know, I wanted it just as bad as, as perhaps they did. Um, but, you know, when you're meeting with a, a place of worship, um, this was back when Georgia didn't have third party solar, um, you know, pathway to, to that financing tool. It was just prohibitive. There was just so many barriers. So, I, I mean, I just ended up saying to a lot of people, I'll be back with a solution. Oh, like, yeah. You know, this is what a, this is going to pay out in, in 15 years. I wouldn't recommend you move forward with that. But mm, wow, I will be back. I will be back with a solution. We know each other now. You know, you know how to reach me. Developing that relationship. Uh, yeah. Same number, same hood. Um, so after after that time you know, I really set about trying to, from a designer standpoint, solve the problem. Like what, what can we stick in this gap that, that can make it happen? And I, I saw, um, you know, I, I always love to point to DC because they're a relatively, you know, small market. And then, you know, have that, that rec standard, renewable energy credit standard. Wow. I thought if only we had DC recs, you know, for the school district, right. Um, for this, you know, affordable housing development. And that really inspired uh, where Solar Stewarts was coming from. Let's let's take all of these learnings and and come up with a program that speaks directly to the barriers that these applications face. And and the people that want to experience that value of solar, not just, okay, you have it on the roof, but how can you use it as a, a learning tool? So many cool experiences um, getting to see what success looks like, you know, meaning uh, I was in a room with a superintendent, uh, energy manager and three teachers, all PhDs. And, you know, I got a soft spot for teachers and they didn't care. They really didn't care about the, 
the solar until, um, you know, we said, well, what if we stuck some STEM curriculum? You know, what if we paid for that? And they lit up. Everybody was on the same page. Everybody got it. Everybody saw the value. They saw where they fit in. And so Solar Stewards was like, let's make that a regular thing. Ah, yeah. Uh-huh. And, and, and do that collaborative kind of project development. If I've mischaracterized this, it's only because I'm trying to make sure that everyone can understand exactly how you paid the bills for the last 10 years before you started Solar Stewards and, uh, and, and got the traction that you currently have with your business model. Solar Concierge was a solar service. We'll call it a consulting business where, as you just described, you thoughtfully curated what I believe to be a very high uh, impact network of future customers that you provided present services to. Is that a, is that an, a, an adequate way of describing it? Yeah, exactly. It's okay. a consultancy. So we, we do feasibility studies and, and help with kind of sustainability planning. Uh-huh. Um, okay. You know, a, a lot of that didn't yield, you know, solar on site, but certainly help them to, to look at, you know, from a lead standpoint, what they could do to prepare and budget and plan for future sustainability measures. And I, you know, it's nice to know, cause we've always taken a, a approach that of course is responsible. You got to do your energy efficiency first. You just got to do some really basic stuff. And that's what I love about solar. People get super excited about it. And that might be what's driving them to change their light bulbs out. I haven't heard. And I, I love my EE people, especially all the beautiful work that Energy efficiency, all the beautiful work that ACEEE, which is American Council for Energy Efficiency, there's another E in there. They've done amazing work with energy burden, but I've never met anyone that says, oh, I can't (laughs) wait to change these light bulbs. You know, oh, how can I seal this window up? This is so exciting. (laughs) But for solar, you know, you've got that. It's something about the technology gets people excited and you can leverage that to get them on a track to be ready. It certainly can't just jump in with the solar without the energy efficiency. So it, it, it certainly helped us to, um, you know, set the stage for where we are now. If people are actually solar ready. It's amazing. Tell me something that's true for you that very few people agree with you on. I don't know. It's a lot of consensus nowadays, you know, when we're talking about equity, um, I can certainly I could certainly put a list together of of, uh, you know, confused objections to what equity has to do with energy, uh, you know, prior to 2020. I mean, I've I've heard some things, (laughs) but, you know, the truth will prevail Um, right now. I suppose the, the biggest here's what I'm hearing now. We don't where are the equity metrics? Nobody knows. We don't have a way to track what equity looks like and means. And, and, uh, that's completely false, you know, communities that have, have had to endure, uh, you know, environmental racism and economic exclusion, they know exactly what success looks like for them. Uh, it's just discounting their opinions, uh, and expertise and lived experiences that, uh, you know, would lead anybody to say, well, we don't know what equity looks like, or we can't track it. Of course you can track it. I mean, energy burden, it's the percentage of, of somebody's income that they pay towards their, their energy costs help alleviate those energy costs. I mean, if that's not clear, I'm, I'm not sure what is. So, you know, sometimes in, in the whole action plan, people do get caught up on, 
they they want the solution to look like um, others in in you know previous past, and that's not necessarily what innovation looks like. It's it's new solutions, right? Um, and fortunately, we have stakeholders that we can listen to that know what they're talking about and include them in these solutions. Hey, you know, it's becoming commonplace to hear that energy storage is the key to deploying renewables at scale. But if you've tried to put storage on a commercial solar project ever, then you realize it's easier said than done until now. Look, I've seen many energy storage solutions for commercial buildings as a solar project developer in my 15 years in the industry, but Yada Energy's storage product just scratches that developer itch of fit, function, and ease to install. Yada's PV-coupled ecosystem of solar plus storage solutions integrates seamlessly right behind the solar panel. In fact, it elegantly replaces the need for a ballast as it nests right into the racking on a flat roof install. Even better, Yada's integrated storage technology can enable up to 60% more solar to be deployed on commercial buildings. With commercial buildings consuming 35% of electricity, that means that Yada is finally helping business owners and solar installers alike make a serious dent in the commercial sector's massive carbon emissions. Yada Energy is poised to meet the growing demands of electrification by maximizing solar plus storage without taking up additional valuable commercial real estate for your customers. To find out how Yada Energy can bring storage to your CNI rooftop project, visit mysuncast.com forward slash Yada. That's Y-O-T-T-A. Yada Energy, an elegant and revolutionary approach to solar plus storage. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast. And you've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Heck, Solve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. Hey, Warriors, if you're subscribed to my email newsletter, then you probably saw an email come through about my good friend Sheldon Kimber, who I consider to be one of the preeminent thought leaders around how our industry can scale faster and hit gigaton level decarbonization. And while there's so much I could say about Sheldon, the thing I want you to know is that he's recently written another blog post all about the nexus of deep decarbonization. You see, Sheldon is the CEO of Intersect Power, which is a clean energy company that is looking at innovative and scalable low-carbon solutions to customers' needs across North America and beyond. And Sheldon and his team really believe that the zero-carbon industries of tomorrow 
will be enabled by clean electricity technologies of today. And that deep decarbonization will be enabled by the historic affordability and availability of renewable energy, which is what Intersect develops. You can learn more about Sheldon and Intersect Power. Read his latest blogs over at intersectpower.com. I would really encourage you to go take that opportunity right now. Wait, not right now. You're in the middle of a podcast. So cue it up or click on the links that we've got in the show notes. All right, back to the episode. Uh, Well, Dana, I think this perfectly tees up the evolution from solar concierge to solar stewards. Can you help us understand with regard to solar steward, what are you doing differently in the marketplace and and how is it being received? So, and given that experience, uh, you know, talking to communities about solar development and and seeing the barriers for them, we we really wanted to bring a a solution that was easy to to deploy. Certainly, we've saw some exceptions where uh, you know, philanthropy kind of stepped in that gap and that was certainly great to see, but that's not exactly scalable. You know, there's a there's a lot of folks out there that don't have that that donor uh, in the wings, right? So, how can we leverage something uh, that has already been successful in fostering renewable energy development for these specific applications in historically excluded communities? And that's how we bumped into you know renewable energy credits and what they've done uh, for other markets where there might be a you know state mandate or or just looking at the corporate sector and their leadership on energy. Uh, I could point to 2016 when, you know, we, the U S had, uh, stepped out of the Paris climate accord, uh, for a couple years. Right. And the business sector said, well, that's unfortunate, but we're going to keep moving forward. And that was certainly inspiring as a business owner, as an American, as, uh, you know, a climate advocate, I, I thought, okay, this is exciting, and this is something that we can leverage uh, for these applications that still need some help. So I was talking to a corporate client at the time um, with Solar Concierge, and uh, you know, this a stakeholder said, uh, "I hate buying recs. No one knows what they are. As far as you know, their customers and employees, it's a, a number and a sustainability report. I mean, the value it was just missing." I said, well, you said you needed to go net zero on this facility. So that's that's what you're going to have to do. We maxed out, you know, the on-site opportunity. Um, but it really got me thinking because I was also talking to a school in their their um, headquarter town at the time. Uh, and so, you know, if only they could procure Rex from this application, if there was something specific. So all of that and a lot of research and development and talking to you know, lawyers and, uh, you know, consultants just to to make sure that this was something viable. That's where s- social recs came about. Um, and a social rec is, is really like any traditional uh, renewable energy credit. We uh, make sure to, it's plugged into the appropriate registry, whether that be, you know, here in, in the States in North America or internationally with the IREC standard, which just so happened to come about at the same time, which is Another, you know, divine point. Right. But the distinguishing factor with a social rec is it is procured from or serving a a historically excluded community, helping to add additionality for that solar on site, typically aggregates of distributed generation or, you know, sided solar, rooftop solar, if you will, Uh, and also price at a, a rate and a term that achieves that. Right. So 
helps to fill in that, that Delta gap helps to fund workforce training and STEM and STEAM programs, and also helps to alleviate, you know, energy burden and create a revenue stream that communities so sorely need. Maybe you could give me a good example by way of a case study or a client that you've worked with, because I'm still, I'm sure folks are still trying to wrap their heads around some of the technical speak and the differentiation between a traditional rec, which is a strip of the, it's a strip of revenue you can get from an open market based on the environmental attributes of the project, right? The renewable energy credits versus a, a term. And I'm not clear if you created the social rec term or if you're leveraging it. So I'd love you to clarify that, but like clarify how the terminology came around, came about how you help a client monetize that if it's in addition to the overall sort of, I'll call it cost stream where it becomes a revenue stream, but it's a cost to someone. And and who is it? Who does it cost and for what benefit? If you could just clarify that by way of maybe an example, that'd be super helpful. Sure. So, uh, for instance, there's a, a, a women-led and founded solar development firm, and they were looking at a site on a school in Baltimore uh, to do a community sur- uh, solar project. So, such a cool application. And just like so many others that I've seen in the Southeast and across the country, you know, the economics just just couldn't get it over the mark. So this is a a community solar project. A hundred percent of it is going to LMI or low and moderate income subscribers for the community solar. It's it's on a school. So the students get to see and participate in it. The school actually has a a, a solar workforce training program already there. Already. Okay. Uh, already there. I mean, the educators are on board. The school gets a little bit of little bit of revenue from kind of leasing their rooftop space, if you will. And so we've got a um, we call them climate stewards or a buyer who, uh, you know, is in the professional services. So they do tax advisory, um, pretty large firm. And excuse me for not naming names quite yet. It's kind of their it's kind of their um program uh, to announce, if you yeah, will, because you know, sure. they are the, the climate steward. But that being said, they said, you know, where our uh, ESG or CSR, you know, environmental social governance or corporate social responsibility program, we want to make sure that we include an equity piece, a, a, you know, society, societal benefit to what we're doing with our internal and, you know, I had known of them in the solar space for quite some time um, and just really admired some of the deals that they got done and, and worked through. And so they, they were just a perfect climate steward for us. And, and they identified that project as one that they wanted to, to purchase social recs from. Social recs is definitely, you know, something that we coined um, in, in looking at how we can take those existing renewable energy credits and put them to a good social use. Do you, um, so, mm-hmm. so do you, sorry, do you step in and like, buy the recs and put that. And, and so the, I'm just making sure I understand the model. You find a client in this case, this tax firm, uh, they agree to purchase the recs. I presume for a premium over the other, the, the relevant market price for the rec in that, yes. in that market. And then they basically dedicate the revenue strip from those recs to solar stewards to take care of programs. Yes, that's right. Uh, to our community partners. So that is all of that social rec revenue uh, is allocated 
to the, you know, and, and this is a, a typical community benefits agreement is a, a traditional term for these, but an agreement that says we're going to use this revenue for, in this case, it's, you know, to get the project to pencil and to add, uh, you know, additional workforce training opportunities. Um, but but exactly that. I mean, it's it really is that simple. And we chose a mechanism that corporates are are already very engaged with. They already buy unbundled recs, you know, millions of dollars of them. So it's a great opportunity just to carve out that for equity. I want to make sure that folks really understand this. How does the inclusion of social recs versus traditional recs change the economics of the project and, and quote, make it pencil? Yeah, it's it's extra revenue. So there's a number of reasons these small projects, um, you know, typically small. So when I say small, I mean 100 kW, 50 kW, you know, all the way up to, you know, two megawatts. That's considered small, although it's 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 not to a community. Right. That's a lot of solar. Two megawatts is a lot for a neighborhood. Um, but that being said, there's there's a lot of barriers to these small portfolios. One, funders typically don't look at deals for less than, you know, $10 million, which actually might bump up into a two megawatt space. But, at, you know, below now we've got some great PPA partners, um, you know, that certainly do. Uh, and, you know, shout out to uh, Inclusive Prosperity Capital. They're, they're one that's just really finally given an opportunity to some of these applications. But even when we've got an equitable PPA partner, uh, you know, tax equity investor, you're still a delta that's missing. Um, and, and that's really where social recs come in, leveraging that opportunity. And, and you know, this is, yes, of course, it's it, it's a premium, kind of like a, a organic tomato is a premium, right? Over a, a, a GMO tomato, um, you know, but, uh, and you get the additional value of being able to partner with this, uh, you know, community, so we know that uh, corporates understand that they've got to engage their their employees, their customers. They've got to show the the good stewardship that they're doing out here. Um, you know, it's that's important to their bottom line. Of course, it's it's the right thing to do, but it also is something that's very uh, valuable to consumers. And when I heard that feedback from that corporate, um, you know, client back in the day, oh, we hate Rex. This is giving them an opportunity to to realize more value within that framework because I, I certainly respect what Rex have done more so for utility scale and, you know, um, those types of applications. Now it's time for these smaller projects and, and historically excluded communities to benefit. Dana, one of the things that you've done that I find particularly interesting is around the structure of the business. Many would look at the way you're approaching advocacy and, and, and immediately, as did I, think, oh, this is nonprofit, but it's not. Help us understand the decision around business structure and why that's core to how you have gone to market. Sure. Well, I, I certainly appreciate that because, you know, it's, it's just another opportunity to innovate and create more equitable systems. Um, I'm, I'm really jazzed uh, about the social entrepreneurship movement and corporates taking more of that stakeholder as opposed to primarily or, or exclusively shareholder uh, approach. Um, it just just helps to recognize the externalities that, you know, going back to my 
my childhood, you know, that folks still have to endure, whether that ends up on somebody's balance sheet or not. And so it was it was important to walk the walk as as, you know, a, a similar entity when, you know, talking to now, of course, I'm not a, a multinational corporation, but I, I still am a, a business. Right. Um, so I do approach things from a business standpoint, but also looking at how to, um, you know, improve economic inclusion when you've got philanthropy, which, you know, I'm, I'm going to extend, you know, nonprofits to to just just philanthropy, which maybe not be is not entirely fair, um, but it's just not scalable. You know, they just have a system um, that can be uh, exclusive at times, certainly, uh, but it doesn't lend itself to ownership. It doesn't lend itself to scaling. Uh, you're always dependent on, you know, something it, the power dynamics just don't uh, really lend themselves to the type of equitable systems that, that we're building. And if we always look at a uh, social impact as something separate from business, we're always going to have the same problems with business. It's gotta be together. And it's, it's not a charitable opportunity. It's a value proposition. That's right. Right there. Yeah. <laughs> I hate that. I, the, even the, the, the fundamental idea over the last 20 years that in some way solar needs charity. It doesn't. Right. It doesn't. It's just like any other technology. And certainly we've got uh, stakeholders and leaders that, that see the value. Um, and it's just a matter of, of making sure that value is created and, and, and maximized and, and in a responsible way. So, I mean, th- we're in a great time with CSR initiatives. I think sustainability professionals are early adopters and leaders anyway. So to be able to include equity in, in you know, in this Time and place is a beautiful thing, a realization of so many dreams. You embody the very nature of being a scrappy startup CEO in many ways, not the least (laughs) of which is how you have gone about funding the business. We mentioned solar concierge, solar concierge in principle as a business is not day-to-day operating. I know that you do still leverage it as many of us do as entrepreneurs as as needed an additional stream of income, but how have you thought about funding this business and have there been any key milestones in the last six months or so that have really given you like the ability to accelerate what you're doing based on funding and income? Yeah. Well, I love that question because uh, it does tie into why we're a social enterprise business models. um, You know, I've, I've been a, a kind of student of the game in uh, entrepreneurship for a while, but then when I got my, uh, you know, MBA, I really got into the opportunities for emerging markets and, and different business models. And uh, dual network platforms have always just fascinated me. You know, every everybody in the world, um, well, can't speak for everybody, but most of us touch a dual network platform, whether we realize it or not, every single day, multiple times. What's an example? Maybe for hours. Yeah. You know, a, a social network platform, um, not to pick any specific one, um, but, um, you know, per, I'm, I'm looking at one on my screen. Um, LinkedIn. <laughs> yeah. I th- yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's just so many. Um, so why can't we leverage that for equitable purposes? Uh, and and also, you know, when we're talking about scaling a business or, or raising rounds, you know, we wanted to make sure that with a novel approach to energy and equity, we still looked uh, similar to to what uh, funders and investors 
uh, are familiar with. So we're employing a, a marketplace where, you know, buyers and sellers can come together. And I'm excited to talk about our solar stewards marketplace platform uh, as a, a solar solar finalist. Yeah. <laughs> Semi-finalist uh, in the NREL and DOE American Made Solar Challenge Round 5 software track. We're in the set mouthful. round now. Yes. And I uh, <laughs> I love saying it all because they have a, a number of really uh, amazing contests. Um, yeah, so we did, did did win some prize money in that first round as a ready uh, winner, but also as a diversity, equity, inclusion and, and justice winner. They've got a an additional track uh, for those applications that prioritize equity as we certainly do. This marketplace uh, is is subscriber driven. So our buyers subscribe to our platform for the opportunity to see all of these opportunities and all of their different phases and all the impact, uh, the communities themselves. So a lot of, you know, the past couple of years has been me and, and maybe an analog way doing a matchmaker dance, which I thoroughly enjoy, but it's not as scalable to the amount of demand that we have. So I'm I'm excited to say, to answer your question, we're using a subscriber model and that allows us to pass that social rec revenue on, as is our charter, to these applications, right? Because they're they're small. So taking a percentage of them isn't going to keep our solar powered lights on. <laughs> a couple of, couple of questions. Um, how much, it's public information, how these different rounds are funded. But for those who are unfamiliar, and you should go back and listen to some of the other American-made Solar Prize winner conversations that we've featured here, but for those folks who are just hearing about this for the first time so that they can have a meaningful understanding of what it meant for your business, how much did you win in the first round? $40,000. Okay, fantastic. And are you still out looking to raise capital now around the marketplace using this as like a validation point? Of course. Um, you know, what entrepreneurs like, no, you know, <laughs> well, no I guess the money. question is, no. the question is, as a marketplace, are you looking to raise capital for scale or do you already have enough buy and sell side that you are self-funding the business? That's right. You know, we're we're really looking to grow organically with our memberships. And so, you know, I, I encourage any listener that, you know, might represent a, a corporate buyer. Uh, also, you know, I, I also Solar Stewards is really for those small and mid-range businesses. Uh, I want to, you know, make sure to emphasize that being one of them myself, not everybody has to do a big, splashy, 100% renewable goal. Like that's, that's great. It's really, does, it's not a great fit for everybody. When you can focus your climate strategy on a local application, that typically means that, you know, you can very conveniently do an equity play. And so we encourage, you know, small and, and mid-sized businesses to start there, start with something local. We can help, you know, recruit uh, or maybe already have in our network a, a project, a school district or some application that ties directly into your business and, you know, giving them a lane to, to do some visible impact. I would imagine, and you can uh, enumerate more if you like, but some of the pain points are, are not only raising capital, which you're solving through, through ways that uh, are creative and uh, also showed uh, demonstrable track record but also getting supply, i.e. projects and demand, i.e. corporate off takers, as well as I would presume a third party, which is developers um, who do the projects, but maybe are uh, slightly, um, I'll say not, not directly related to bringing the projects to the platform. Is, am I understanding everything correctly? 
Well, their vision, and I'm seeing some traction on this, although I recognize that developers already have a lot going on, uh, but this is an incentive and a tool for them to see the value in, in going after projects uh, that they know looking from a mile away, they know that's not going to pencil. And I know because they would send those projects to me, oh, Dana will go look at that. And and I did, you know? And so I get to leverage all of those relationships I built from, you called me scrappy. So those scrappy projects, right? That somebody scraps uh, into, you know, an opportunity in this, in this, um, in this field, but also I want to incentivize developers, you know, don't sell, you know, some of these opportunities short, know that social recs can support you, you know, increasing your market share and including these types of projects. That is fantastic. Uh, what I'm, what I'm continually surprised by uh, are entrepreneurs like yourself who are already in the throes of startup life and trying to figure out how to make everything work. And mm-hmm. then they keep hot coals on their head by taking on something like being a board member at SIA. Congratulations. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Congratulations for, uh, for joining the hot fray. Hot coals. And- no, no coal, no coal over here. Uh, that's a, perhaps, perhaps a yeah. misappropriation of a term yeah. here, but, uh, but what drove you to say, you know, if not me, who, if not now, when to, and join the SIA board, which is not an insignificant commitment of your time. Yeah, I have to give that up to to great leadership at SIA. You know, I, I love I love how they've really embraced the opportunity that equity uh, presents to the entire industry. Uh, I've just, you know, Abby Hopper um, and and all of her staff has just been so uh, amazing and uh, recognizing that this was uh, essential to uh, to the entire industry. And and I've you know had experiences with SIA in the past that that weren't that. So when I saw that, I thought, okay, I want to be a part of this. It's time to step up. And I just have to thank the SIA membership for voting me in because I'm not, I'm not necessarily a, thank you. I'm not a politician. You know, I certainly, um, you know, I say what I. But you did lob, you and I think you and Joy both approached it as a campaign and, and you you, lobbied to get it. I, I just thought, hey, if people see me as a good fest, certainly didn't want to lose. You but did. Yeah, I, nobody does, right? You that, did a great right. job. Well, yeah. I appreciate that. And especially from, from you know, coming from you, um, I wanted to, you know, at least say what we're about. And if the membership wants it, then and then that's what they want. So, I mean, I'm fresh. So I hope to make some, uh, you know, beneficial changes. And and I, um, you know, I do love our solar community. We're We're certainly a a different breed. <laughs> yeah, we are. That's for sure. Well, uh, speaking of which, one of the things I often like to, to ask around understanding sort of some of your influence, again, backing out to that, that uh, higher level of impact. When you think about the solar industry, who stands out for you as an influential, I might, you might put in quotes, hero for you? I love uh, Catherine Lucy. She's the founder of Solar Sister. Uh, she's cool. She's so cool. I got to meet her, um, at a women in solar event in 2007, 16, 17, that Georgia solar put, put on. Yeah. And, and I mean, the work that she does with entrepreneurs, it's kind of like the Avon of solar, if you will, um, in, in Africa. Yeah. So she not only, uh, empowers women, but women entrepreneurs 
with solar energy. I mean, it just checks all of my personal boxes, obviously. So love her. Uh, I mentioned Avi just because the leadership, what she's done and Sia has been very inspiring. I, you know, I, I hate to just start listing names because I don't want to leave anybody totally out. Get that. There's just so many. Uh, yeah. But, you know, historically, uh, and it's about to be her 200th birthday. Um, I got to give Harriet Tubman uh, a little shout out. I, I, I mean, just leading people to, uh, you know, a different reality, a, a more free reality. So one thing I, I love about solar is it is inherently an opportunity to to be a bit freer, have more control over such an uh, economic driver as energy is is really liberating. And, you know, the environment that she had to survive in, that she took it upon herself to put her life on the line for others. So cool. Uh, it's just she's just really cool. Is there, is there anything that you feel I, I imagine I've talked uh, to a number of friends who have found themselves through personal initiative or simply being as this industry has candidly so few black leaders uh, they find themselves in the limelight of folks asking, like, am I doing this right? Um, but around the question around DE&I, where specifically have you found that either companies are finally getting it right or they have lots of area to improve, i.e. they're consistently missing the mark? Mm, well, first off, there there are no, sh- I mean, certainly um, there should be many more, but uh, I definitely don't uh, agree with their uh, are so few black leaders in sustainability and solar. We just haven't been, uh, you know, given that opportunity to shine, uh, yeah. you know, for the traditional, that, the traditional for barriers. Yes, of course. Um, so I, I like to point out, I, I'm not the only one in uh, boss black owners of solar services. You know, we've got a lot of members across the country. Last I, I counted, it was, you know, 40 some, um, you know, businesses in, in so many markets doing DG, doing utility scale, doing community solar, uh, EV stuff. Um, you know, we're, we're certainly out there. And, and finally, we're, we're getting the opportunity to, to be um, valued. I think that's, that's the difference. I do tend to be a pretty, a shoot, I'm a sh- straight shooter. I think that's kind of my my Western PA upbringing. You know, we kind of just tell it as, as it is. I, I am a little bit more outspoken to injustices that I see, you know, so so maybe that's that's why folks do say, hey, is this working? Is this not? Um, but uh, if it, it creates a more equitable opportunity for, you know, someone, someone, you know, coming up or even somebody who's already in a role, then that's exactly the objective. Do you have any specific advice uh, that you found has resonated with folks when they do reach out and ask for advice that maybe we could allow for a slightly uh, different uh, megaphone to to help folks that maybe don't have access and haven't thought to reach out to you or uh, they're still yeah. just, maybe they're just still noodling it and they don't know who to reach out to? My disclaimer, I'm not a DEI consultant. I just yeah, have a of lot course. of lived you know, experience that, um, to your point uh, earlier about, you know, how, how others can can leverage, uh, you know, these these experiences, um, you know, listening. Let's keep it simple. Just just be a listener. Um, realize that, you know, empathy is is at the center of this. You might not have somebody else's experience, but that doesn't mean it's not valuable and if you're not attuned to 
all those different realities, then you're, you're missing opportunities for yourself. You know, uh, DEI, whatever we want to call it, equity. Um, it's of course, it's again, the right thing to do, but this, this, the numbers have proven that, uh, entities that have diverse teams are more profitable. So you're missing opportunities for revenue. And as a business owner, let's keep it to that. If, you know, let's, if we do have to make it that simple, then let's do that. You're not developing that full potential of, of, you know, profitability as an enterprise when you don't embrace diverse teams. And that's just the bottom line. So, uh, you know, there's just so much value on top of that, but let's just keep it to, you know, that simple. Um, it's a, it's an economic, it's a competitive advantage. And um, fortunately, we're seeing companies really see that value more so than ever. Well, Dana, I couldn't have asked for a better uh, and more clarifying question. And I think that that is going to be super insightful and helpful for folks. Uh, it does come back down to just the blocking and tackling of fundamentals, as you say. A lot of folks are uh, in the absence of clarity driven by certainty and Profitability is certainty, and uh, and that's something that statistics and data support. And uh, so I appreciate that we are able to give people guidance and clarity. And I hope that so folks who are listening to this interview are inspired to reach out and get to know you more. One of the things that I find often for me influences how I think, lead, act, uh, interact is through books that I read. I find that leaders are readers and readers are leaders. And I'd love to know how books in particular have influenced the way that you show up as an entrepreneur. Are there uh, one or two that you might recommend for folks that would give some insight into kind of what has influenced how you have become the the leader that you are? Wow. Well, there's certainly a lot of works that um, particularly in recent history have come out to really help folks understand, um, you know, where, where energy is, where, uh, equity is the color of law, I think is, is really, uh, a great one. The color of law, the color of law, just, just talking about, you know, some of the systemic, um, this barriers. Roth. Yes. Rothstein. Yeah. Systemic barriers that, you know, communities have faced, um, and, you know, sometimes as I found, fortunately, I'm, I have the opportunity to talk more about the work that Solar Stewards does now. Um, but, you know, just just what equity was and why it's even, you know, just just framing it around the reality of uh, systemic oppression um, was kind of the first step. And, and thankfully, these resources came out all at the same time. And so now that people understand the reality, now we can start to address that reality and I certainly love that one because redlining is something that we look at in the Solar Stewards program. You know, what communities were redlined? I, I looked at my, you know, speaking back to my hometown, we were in a yellow zone. <laughs> right. We were in the yellow. It wasn't red. It was it was yellow. So not green. <laughs> I mean, these I mean, you know, maps. Right. I do love a map. So, um, yeah, the that's book, a good by the one. way, is uh yeah, the book, by the way, is by a guy named Richard Rothstein. I'm just looking at it here. The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. And uh, wow, this is, I'm definitely going to check this out. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks to Richard. Um, you know, I'm going to have a full book list on 
on our SoraStewart.net web website because there are so many. And, uh, you know, I, I can't keep up. I like to do an audio book, you know, when I drive, I haven't been driving because, you know, pandemic for these past couple of years. So I've got a whole, uh, you know, laundry list that I'm looking forward to getting to, but I'm putting this list together. It's growing and growing. Um, you know, I, I certainly Where's that list going to live so I can direct folks to it. Well, it, it's going to be on on the website at some point. I'll, I'll have a link to just the Amazon page that that okay. has uh, the and whole it's list solar, there. That's solarstewards dot dot net net. Gotcha. Yes, it's also dot io, but they both live in the same same Fantastic. spot. <laughs> well, to that end, where can folks best engage with you? Where do you like to be found? LinkedIn. I love what LinkedIn has done for the it professional has, uh, community. connected us. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, I was yeah. listening to your show before we were connected on LinkedIn. So. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it. I'm, uh, I'm always, I always love when I get a chance to actually interview someone and hear that you've been listening to Suncast. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's quite flattering, but it also, uh, as, as we, as you pointed out earlier, it validates the work. It, it allows us to feel like we're doing something that is meaningful. And I believe that you are doing something that is meaningful. It's one of the reasons I reached out. It's one of the reasons that we all voted for you to join the SIA board uh, at the risk of uh, everyone else feeling that I am just gushing and fl- over flattering you. Uh, I, I will I will bring my flattery to a close there. I'd love to ask you our uh, erstwhile and final question. So let's end today, as we always do, with a bold prediction. Dana, Claire Redden, what one thing do you see happening in the marketplace that maybe nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? Well, I just want to say thank you. And likewise, um, I think we both understand how important it is to tell these stories, to, to uh, you know, engage stakeholders and really listen to them um, and, and give them a platform. So just I'm flattered that I'm, I'm on your show uh, and thank you. And my crystal ball moment is just the inclusion of, of DERs or distributed energy resources. Um, you know, I just absolutely love that self-sided opportunity um, for resiliency, for equity, uh, to alleviate energy burden uh, and just really uh, realize the full potential of, of solar. Um, and now that we've got a little bit more uh, guidance from a federal level with FERC 2222, not to get too nerdy here, but uh, I can't wait to see how DERs are complementing the grid infrastructure um, so we can you know, realize uh, power redundancy that, that saves lives in, in this increasingly um, you know, sketchy climate that we've got to now endure and, and acclimate to. And we can, you know, we're, we're uh, humans, we're adaptable. Uh, you know, we just want to limit the suffering in, in the meantime. Well said. I love the, uh, the notion uh, that we both uh, claim as reality that with FERC 2222, that in fact is not only geeky, but like both <laughs> so, so needed and, and so long fought for, uh, we can complement grid infrastructure and as you said, realize power redundancy that saves lives. Dana Claire Redden is the founder and chief executive of Solar Stewards. And it has been a profound pleasure to have an opportunity to get to know you and to have you here on Suncast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nico. Always a fan. All right, Solar Warrior. Well, well, that for me and I hope for you was an eye-opening conversation about the many ways that the underprivileged communities around the United States are increasingly getting advantage and opportunity 
through hard work from entrepreneurs like Dana, Claire Redden. Dana, thank you for your service. Thank you for your inspiration and insight and your hard work and grit. Thank you for sharing it here on Suncast so that others can vicariously live through you, but can also learn how to partner with you. If you're one of those folks, I hope that you will go find the LinkedIn post that we've made about this episode and you will leave a love letter to Dana there and not just shoot up in the DMs to see how she's doing, but leave her a note in the comments of the post. Not only does it help us on LinkedIn, but it shows Dana that you are watching. And it shows me that you're watching too. I'd love it if you'd leave a note there for us as well, how we could do this better. If there's somebody else like Dana that we need to have on the show, I learned so much through the recommendations and suggestions and connections from you, dear listener. So I ask, please let me know if you or your boss or your best friend or somebody else that you're inspired by should be on Suncast. We're always filling up the queue. Who do you think should be on the show? Who do you think should hear Dana's story today? Look forward to hearing from you over on LinkedIn. Thanks once again, finally, to our sponsors for helping make this content free to you week in and week out. You can learn more about them at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. That's also where you can learn how to partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle.